you have plans, right? And then God laughs at said plans. And then God like puts you where you're supposed to be. I ended up realizing everything was divine. Everything was happening for a reason. I'm supposed to be an educator as much as I try to fight it. It's my purpose. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? Hello, my name is Imani Cheers. I am currently the Associate Director at the School of Media and Public Affairs at the George Washington University in Washington, DC. I'm also an Associate Professor of Digital Storytelling here. And why do Black educators matter? Well, first of all, obviously. <laughs> they matter because in particular, especially at, at a PWI, which is a predominantly white institution where I've been on faculty now for seven years, I represent just in, in my physical like presence and my being so much for, for my students, in particular my, my white students and my, my non-students of color who for many of them have never had a black educator, or if they did, it, you know, it might have been in their early elementary years. Possibly it was a, an athletic coach, but they, many of them have never met a, which is sort of scary to say in 2020, but many of them have never met a black person with a doctorate degree. And the fact that in my department, I am the only full-time black female on faculty and I'm the only faculty member with a PhD on the on the journalism side of program split in two. So, you know, to come in being Dr. Cheers and requiring my students address me as such, it automatically just breaks down so many barriers and dispels so many stereotypes that that are just institutionalized within them. So so we we represent in in mixed spaces as an example of of what can be and what is and and we normalize for what many of us because I, I have my my graduate degrees from Howard University what many of us already know is true but for such fortunately for a portion of the population they're just not privy to to our greatness privy to our greatness come on Dr. Cheers so <laughs> where are you from I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois. Whoop, whoop. Shout out to Chicago. So that's where we are right now. Where are you? <laughs> where are you teaching now? You said George Washington University. And where is that located? Washington, D.C. Okay. So walk us through your experiences. How did you go from a child from Chicago to Washington, D.C.? I know that you said that you went to Howard. So I'm assuming undergrad is what took you to D.C. But walk us through your K through eight experience. What was it like for you growing up in Chicago? Yeah, I will. So I'll walk you through that, but because it's a bit of a it's definitely a bit of a little bit of a maze. 
my undergrad was actually at Washington University in St. Louis. I wanted to go to Spelman. It's a whole other story. <laughs> why I didn't go there. Why 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 life took me in a different direction. But as I said, I'm originally from Chicago. My parents were born in St. Louis and my father worked for Ebony and Jet Magazine for close to 25 years. And we ended up moving as as he was promoted throughout the company. So he started as journalist and a photojournalist, as I mentioned, and then he moved on up the ranks through to his final position before before he left the company, which was the managing editor of the branch Ebony Magazine South Africa. So the only international publication. It ran for five years and we ended up moving. So I was born in Chicago where he was working there. We moved to Kansas City where he got promoted. We moved to Washington, D.C. in in the mid 80s, which really which started my when when I first really think about my childhood education. It's definitely like D.C. 1980s. I went to DCPS for kindergarten, first and second grade. And then we moved to Prince George's County, Maryland, which is just just the suburbs. So it's about, you know, from where we were living, maybe a 30 minute drive. But what's so interesting about PG County is that it was, and I believe still is, please don't quote me, but one of the most, so to speak, like affluent communities for African Americans. So I grew up seeing around me just, of course, with Ebony and Jet Magazine, um, these were the, you know, I learned how to read, reading my father's articles. And it was just really a, you know, I grew up knowing and seeing the excellence of Black people. It was all around me, everywhere I went, whether it be, you know, our community with other families who were all Black, and they were doctors and lawyers. And, you know, I think of some of my early television shows that I watched, The Cosby Show, for example, which, you know, a lawyer and a doctor with their parents and, and all of the family friends and the people that we were introduced to as an audience through that show, I saw that played out in real life. I saw that played out in my neighborhood. I saw that played out in my my schooling and my education. It was just common for us. It's December right now when we're recording this, but I always think of the Kwanzaa celebrations that that we had as a kid that were always ingrained in in our education because they started at school. We had a West African dance teacher. This is in like third grade. I don't know how many third grades right now have West African dance teachers and and very robust community driven Kwanzaa programs, but my school did. And it was just a beautiful way for me to constantly, as I said, see just the the beauty of the black experience that was laid out in front of me really from birth. Like it was just something that I always saw everywhere around me. So it, it spilled into my my education. Definitely elementary, middle school. And by the time I went to high school, we had ended up we had started making that transition to Johannesburg. So I actually graduated high school from the American International School in Johannesburg. And that was one of the few times I will say that 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 my school wasn't predominantly black. We went to the American school, so it, it happened to be just by sort of gentrification and cost. It was it was very inter international, very interracial. But it was, you know, I remember vividly some of my favorite educators, black women in particular, a my middle school French teacher, my high school French teacher, these were amazing black women. I think of my my elementary science teacher was a black woman, so stern. She had these very thick, like rimmed black glasses that she would sort of like pull down. Very 
very much so <laughs> when you think of like a very staunch teacher, she would like sort of pull them down to the tip of her nose but, <laughs> and, and do science experiments for us. But just always around and seeing amazing, phenomenal, brilliant Black people. Man, since childhood. That's incredible. And to even learn to read by reading your father's articles. Such an incredible privilege. Incredible privilege. So you ended up at Howard for... No, no, you said that you went to Washington Washington University University. in St. Louis. Yeah, that was undergrad. And that was, as I I said, because I'm still a little salty about it, because I, I did, I wanted to go to Spelman. And I applied early, early decision. I was applying from Johannesburg, as I mentioned, so where I was in high school. Applied early decision, so excited. I need this to happen. I need this to make it work. And then my parents encouraged me to obviously apply to more than one school. And it just so happened that, that, that Washington University in St. Louis offered me a better scholarship package. So that's where I went. <laughs> that's where my parents were very clearly about, and, and you're going. So I knew I wanted, you know, quote unquote, a black experience. A black experience I wanted, so I was I made it a point to go to an HBCU for graduate school. Okay, so when yeah. and what led you to begin a career in education? Was it when you were an undergrad at your PWI, or was it when you finally had your opportunity to attend an HBCU in grad school? <laughs> Neither. <laughs> I'm a reluctant educator. I'm someone who education found me more than than I found it. So I, I had aspirations to mention my father being a photojournalist. I actually wanted to be a television writer and I wanted to be a film director and pursued that pathway and that career. And it really just so happened that, you know, sort of fate and everything sort of serendipitously. But when I was looking for for jobs and opportunities, it was 2007, 2008, if, if anyone remembers a massive financial crisis. And I was just strongly encouraged to like stay and get my PhD. I finished my master's degree at Howard where it was finishing up and people were like, this is not the time to be like broke and, <laughs> and like not be able to get a job. Why don't you just stay and get your doctorate? So I applied, got into the program, still at Howard, of course. And I ended up, you know, really, again, very reluctantly going through graduate school because I, I was like, I'm a creative person. I wanted to be, to be in a creative field. And, and the opportunities in education were just bountiful when I graduated. So when I finished in 2010, my doctorate in mass communications and media studies, I ended up being hired at the PBS News Hour. So I'm sort of in television, right? I'm over here like, I'm in news, not exactly what I had originally planned. But I was like, okay, I'm in TV. But my job, my main job was the director of all the educational resources. So it was my job to turn our nightly news program into a curriculum for K through 12 graders and work in elementary and and secondary. And that was something where I had never really thought about, this is 2010, as I mentioned, I never really thought about the intersection between education and TV. I was a fan of PBS. I I mean, I knew the news hour because I was a huge fan of Gwen Eiffel, who became, you know, such an amazing mentor to me when I was at the news hour. And it was just really one of those, one of those experiences where, like I said, so you have plans, right? You make your plans, right? And then God laughs at said plans. And then God, like, puts you where you're supposed to be. So uh, I was thinking I, you know, I want to do all this television writing and I want to do these, you know, this was like Issa Rae before Issa Rae, because I'm a little quirky as, as she is. And and that's where I envisioned myself to go. But the opportunity at the news hour came about. And then from there, the position at GW 
came open. And it was really one of those where I was like, I don't know. Like, I never imagined I'd be a professor. I got the PhD because we were in a world financial crisis. And I ended up realizing, because of course, the way life works, everything was divine. Everything was happening for a reason. I'm supposed to be an educator as much as I try to fight it. <laughs> it's, it's it's my purpose, right? And it's one of those things is like, you th- well, you think you're supposed to do this and this. And then you you land where you're supposed to be. And then all the pieces sort of come together. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, okay, this is where I am. So yeah, I'm not I'm not the person who imagined as a child that I was going to be a university professor or that I was going to spend the bulk of my time. Although, as I mentioned, I teach, you know, digital storytelling and documentary filmmaking, but I would probably say 40% of what I teach is media literacy. And what I'm really passionate about is making sure that young people, really everyone, but a particular young people are able to decipher through all the information that is thrown in front of us and, and to be able to, to pick out the truth. And people are like, you know, if you would have said that years ago, especially from someone who's coming from a journalism background, but it's like, well, you, you watch the news. That is true. And, and we now live in a world where things like alternative facts or fake news are, are just common in our lexicon. And that was never the case five years ago. That was never the case. Like, you know, probably six years ago, I think about where now all of a sudden the place that we normally would go to for credible, viable information, people are very reluctant. And the individuals who are there protecting, you know, our democracy and providing information and news are seen in some spaces as enemies of the state. What? Like, this is something I would have never Never imagined. As I mentioned, my you know, I grew up reading weekly Jet magazine, monthly Ebony magazine, and my father was a journalist. I you know the utmost respect for journalists, and even he would always mention that true journalists are in education. Their goal is to gather information and then share it with the public and educate people around very important topics. And his his area of interest was always African affairs and explaining and and connecting Black Americans with their ancestral brothers and sisters throughout the diaspora. But all of that started with education, taking away the stereotypes and what people think about certain things and then providing them with the actual information, the actual images, the beauty of the African continent and all of its diversity and the fact that it's a continent and not a country. Start there with education, right? Mm. So just so important when I really sort of sat back and realized that everything that I had really been learning as much as I thought it was all about just representation and images, but education was the underlining factor to all of it. Let's talk about that because you said you never really thought about the intersection of education and television. And I also had not ever thought about it, but when you said it, things started to click because it's more than just the representation and providing the narratives. It's sinister the way that some of the images and narratives are presented. So what is the intersection between education and television, especially race in this country? Uh, Come on, Professor. Come on, Dr. Cheers. I want to learn. Now this is my space, right? Like this is my my area of expertise. And and I've been I've been studying now for, for probably close to 20 years and really looking at looking at that intersection. Because as I mentioned, for me, I grew up seeing someone like a Felicia Rashad or even a Debbie Allen 
on television and seeing these like obviously brilliant both also Howard University grads but seeing these like brilliant beautiful you know playing these just amazing roles being in a in a in a marriage with five children and she's the you know she's a lawyer and then throughout we see this the course of the the show she becomes a partner at her law firm and all of these things like and I'm four or five six years old when when I'm watching this on television right and and understanding because I'm watching this at four or five six years old but then we're turning the tv off and I'm looking at our our families and members and friends and people who are coming who are who are doing the exact same thing right also black also amazing also went to HBCUs you know, also doctors and lawyers and surgeons and writers and artists and collectors and pilot. I mean, I think of just all of these amazing things, but, but TV has the power. It has the power to, to inform and shape narratives. And it took me a while to even understand and realize because I would always stay and watch the credits. But I was always fascinated who created these shows. So when I think about everything from a different world, which was so influential for a, just definitely a large number of people, when you think about like, as I said, I wanted to go to Spelman. Well, I wanted to go to Spelman. I had a cousin who who was a couple years ahead of me that went there, but I wanted to go to Spelman because I found out that that's where they filmed a different world. And when I was 11 years old and I'm seeing all of this beauty, all of this blackness, all of this glory on this television show. And I'm like, that's what I wanted. I want to go there. Wherever this is, <laughs> like fictional Hillman College, which is based off of Hampton and what was filmed at Ed Spellman, as I mentioned, I was like, that is the place where I want to go. So it's so much more than where we, like where we're looking to, to see our careers go. As I mentioned, doctors, lawyers, even go to college, but just to see yourself, to actually see yourself in images and on on television and in films and as i mentioned in newspapers or magazines in such a positive light was was groundbreaking for me and then growing up in a heyday where we were so blessed i believe i, I was born in, in 1980 so i feel like there's a lot of people who are around you know my age those late 70s early 80s babies where where we had such a wealth of positivity on television for us to to want to emulate. We, we could constantly see ourselves in so many different shows. Living Single is what I wrote my dissertation on, but I've been having so many conversations with people because they like to, depending on where you are, I always have to say that, right? People want to think that Friends was the first of its kind or a show like Girls, or even Sex and the City was a first of its kind. And I have to constantly remind people that they're, you know, living single. Yvette Lee Bowser, who who created that show in, in 1993, that was the first. Not, I mean, Friends didn't come out until several years later. Of course, all these other shows were predominantly white cast, came out years later. But Living Single set the blueprint for Friends and all of these other shows. And it was the, again, these amazing, complicated complex, interesting, beautiful Black people and all the glories of their stories that were able to come to fruition that really educated and still does because the shows, thank goodness for syndication, you're still able to watch them and, and to see so much of yourself in it, but also not necessarily just for us, because what I found was so important also is that for, for non-people of color to see these powerful positive images, which also counteracts a lot of the things that they might have heard or might have seen in other spaces. So it's important for us to own our narrative. It provides such a level of education for so many people globally, right? We're talking throughout and across the world. This is just one of many stories, and we want to keep the conversation going. 
Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon. Now, let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. You mentioned the impact that you have on students that are black, but also on students who are not black and have never seen a black person be the owner and expert of knowledge. Talk to us about your most impactful moment that you've had as an educator thus far. Ooh, that's a heavy question. So two, uh, okay, two and a half years ago now, 2018, as I mentioned, and for anyone who's ever been to a PWI, most of us, whether you're you're teaching there, or you're, you're a student there, grad student, whatever, doesn't matter, undergrad, but generally speaking, you know, WashU and GW have the same numbers. We're like 6%, Black people are 6% or so of the population. Faculty make up fewer as well. I had always yearned for, for a connection. And I noticed, you know, as I mentioned, this is my seventh year at GW. So I noticed probably the first couple of years that students would seek me out. Students who were not in the School of Media and Public Affairs. I would get emails every time registration would come around from a student. Again, not taking journalism at all. And, you know, Dr. Cheers, I'm, I'm in the business school. And I am allowed, like, two or three classes as electives. I want one of them to be your class because, et cetera, et cetera. And undoubtedly... One of those reasons was because you are another Black woman or because you're a Black person. I'm also good at what I do, so that's important. But it was just when you're in an oasis and and you're constantly searching for connection, it's really... I understand the power and I don't take away the gravity of, of the fact of my simple presence of being here, especially in a department and with most faculty members who are a little older. So like there's all these sort of connections. I have a mohawk. I don't necessarily look like a professor, so to speak. So one of my most profound moments was in 2018 when I started a mentoring group. And it it started as it was this thing called Mentor Moments with Dr. Cheers. And and I would invite students. I I, I love to eat and most college students also do, especially on a free meal. So it started with me inviting about 15, 15 undergraduate students. And I had a recent alum, Nana Ajay, who had just graduated. She happened to be back in town. And then I had a really good friend of mine, Stacy Fowler, who works at the Career Center, all Black women. And I said, hey, we're going to get together on Friday night. I'm going to order some pizza. I'm going to, you know, get some beverages. And I just want us to sort of sit down and, and talk. And there's always a theme. So that's why Stacy was there in particular with career services. And I was like, I want them to know that you're here and, and what resources that they might not be aware of for internships, jobs, et cetera. And then Nana, as a recent alum, I was like, I want you here to sort of share with them the other side, right? You've made it, you've made it through. And it turned out to be what was only supposed to be originally, I think about an hour, turned into almost a three hour dinner. The restaurant practically closed and just sort of let us have our time and our moment. And it was filled with a lot of laughter. It was filled with a lot of tears. And one of the students at the end of the night, we're sort of packing up and she was like, this is, this was the best night I've I've had here. She was like a junior. She was like this, just sitting here. And sure, our little, my little agenda, you know, that was 
cleaned up real early, but just the fellowship and, and to be able to have a safe space for them to, to be able to share and be vulnerable and, and to see their, their authenticity sort of show like that was, that was by far my, my best moment. So it wasn't in the classroom, it wasn't in the classroom at all. It was actually at a restaurant down the street, but again what turned into and then also subsequently from that moment i was able to to reach out to some university partners and the office of diversity and inclusion and was able to turn what because i was originally paying for all of these events which were they were monthly out of pocket i was able to get some institutional support and and we ended up having an event last year so about a year after the first one black faculty staff and students and we had about 200 people there so it went from like 14 at a restaurant to like 250 and that was a good feeling. You're building that team. You're building that ecosystem. It's nice. It's. I mean, it's just nice to have, I think for a lot of us, particularly if you went to a PWI at any point in your, your life and you're now teaching at one, you, you yearn to create the spaces that you wish you had when you were at blank, right? Mm-hmm. In undergrad, I wish there were spaces of blank. And I remember being in a classroom. I was in the School of Art. There was like no one. I was for three years, one of the only black people, period. And the times when you just need to connect with someone else is, I I don't take that for granted because it's really important. What is the state of education in black America and how did we get here? The state of education in black America, that's another great question. You know, I think it, it's one of those things where it's it's very regional. It depends on where you where you are. I've seen over the course of this pandemic how how resources are like, like things were very inequitable before the pandemic hit, especially for Black communities, especially within Black education. Especially when you look at you know my son, as I said, I started in in public school. I, I finished in private, but I, I went to public school for. For K through eighth, and I only did private schools in high school. But when I see we're in DCPS and DC public school system, and when I see just because of you know zip code, even in a city as small as DC, the the inequitable education levels that are, are where we live, which is not in a predominantly black neighborhood anymore, whereas the predominantly black neighborhoods and schools in wards like seven and eight, for example, we're in ward three, just drastically different. And this is all quote unquote public school, but it's so, 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 so unequitable. And it infuriates me, honestly, when I look at a place, the nation's capital, and the fact that depending on the school, the neighborhood, you can have upwards of 30, 40% of students not reading on grade level. And we all know that it's not based on, on anything such as desire, willing to learn, et cetera, et cetera, that there's so many other aspects. And when you add, as I mentioned, the pandemic or something on top of that, right? So there was already inequity, inequities beforehand. Now we add a pandemic, a declining economy, and of course, unfortunately, no national leadership thus far. It really strains families. It really strains families. I know how hard it is for me. I have a six-year-old son. I'm a single mom. And I know how hard it is for me to follow up with his second grade work. I can't imagine 
what it's like for a single mom in a different part of the city who doesn't have the institutional support that I have at GW, you know, in terms of the, my, my praise goodness, my, my paycheck has never stopped. And, and I've been able to, to utilize, you know, just university resources that I know many other people have not been able to utilize. And that just, it really alarms me when I think of what's going to come out of the next six to 18 months when we really start looking at the state of education across the board, but it's particular within Black communities and people who weren't able to afford $1,000 a month for a learning pod so their child could, could participate in virtual learning from the public school system, or you know could not afford to put their child in a private school as they were losing their job and still trying to figure out their basic necessities. Like, what is this really going to look like? And how are things going to really show themselves looking at, because we are going to get through this pandemic, but as we get through it, what, what are, what are the costs going to be? And I think the major costs are going to come in the form of education and in particular education within black, brown minority communities, and especially places where, which were already struggling and unfortunately are just going to, that gap, that education gap, that wealth gap is just going to continue to grow. So I'm, 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 I'm alarmed. I too am alarmed, especially when you talk about those opportunity divides and those achievement gaps yeah. Yeah. being exploited right now. Mm-hmm. And where can we go from here? Ooh, that is the yeah. goal. Where do you go? As I mentioned, for a lot of my students, these are my college students, you know, coming to campus, right? Being able to live on campus, like that is where the playing field sort of leveled out, right? Regardless of your home situation, if you could come here and you had access to, you know, computer labs and equipment. So, right. So the playing field levied itself out a little bit and then you, you take that away and you put people back in, in homes where everything from, from adequate Wi-Fi to you knew you needed a new computer, but eh, it's okay because I can always use a computer lab and now you don't have access to any of that. So it's really, so I I think again, we're going to see it K through, you know, all the way, through terminal degrees. Now, you are an associate professor of digital storytelling. Why is this so important for people to understand how to tell their stories? How to tell their stories and how, as I mentioned earlier, which is what I've, I've even shifted, but how to decipher information. I am, I am the most passionate as of late about how do you take, and it's not just because we came out of an election season, as I mentioned, it's, it's, it's all the time. It's all the time. How do you take all the information that's put in front of you? How do, how do you make sure that you are not inadvertently being catfished? For I've had students who are applying for jobs, applying for jobs, they're looking for some freelance work. They're getting to a point, you know, where they're getting ready to sign some paper. It's a startup company. And, you know, someone's like, send us your social security number. And I'm like, whoa, 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 before, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, before you start sharing all your personal information, are you sure this company is who they say they are? Have you done the research? Are you sure when the information that you received, are you, are you sure that it's credible? And I think that's the most important thing at the moment for me. Owning our stories and telling it, absolutely. But being able to, when you see information, when you see a headline, and you see blank said blank, whatever it may be. Joe Biden won the presidency. 
are you able to make sure that that is credible information? Because depending on what you listen to right now, Donald Trump hasn't conceded. No, and according you to his yeah his photo shoots on Twitter, he has no plans to concede. None. And depending on where you are, I mean, I, I had I had students, and this is very validly. We're just like, well, Doctor Cheers, like I'm at I'm at home, and my mom only watches Fox News. And they said blank, blank, and blank. I know what we know, but like, you know, and you're just hearing this on, on like repeat, right? How, how do you make sure that you are able to decipher information in a time when there are things thrown at you 24, 7, 365? And unfortunately, there are, are instigators and bad actors that intentionally want to deceive you, intentionally want to, to provide lies and misinformation. So that's that's really where I feel like I'm going in terms of sort of the next phase, administration, education, higher education, administration, as I'm, I'm now an administrator as well. And I split my time between teaching. And, and most importantly, also, my other thing is I'll sort of wrap up is also with hiring. It's really important to me. I came into this program being one of two Black people on faculty, and I'm really proud to say within the first six months that I've been here, I've been able to hire three. Mm-hmm. And people are like, that's not a lot. And I'm like, that's a 300% increase from where we were July 1st. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that too, and thankful for that because we know that there is a shortage. There is a shortage of educators across the country. So just to know that you have, you know, extended your network and again, building that ecosystem so that black educators, competent black educators feel safe working in this environment. That's that recruitment and retention so that you can get people to come and stay so that you build that really, really strong community within the school so that you don't have to feel so isolated, especially at a PWI. I went to a PWI for undergrad, so I understand what you mean. I understand what you mean by that. What advice do you have for first-year educators? Ooh, learn how to say no. Learn how to say no. You don't have to serve on every committee. You don't have to be the chair of every single thing. Learn how to protect your your work-life balance. If you look up and realize that you are still grading or, you know, because you're on five different committees, et cetera, et cetera, that you're still working well, 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 well after your traditional work hours, you, you need to cut some things back. And And I didn't do that very well at all <laughs> my first couple of years I was on everything thinking that it was it was going to make me look better or that people were going to say "Ooh, look at her she's on all these committees and all people were saying is "Ooh, she don't know how to say no <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't play that well so I always felt for it's, it's easy to always want to say yes but but give yourself some grace you don't have to be on everything trust you know Yes, Dr. Cheers. Thank you so much for telling us your story, your global walking us through this experience because I made a lot of assumptions. I just knew you were going to say you were from Chicago and then you went to D.C. for undergrad and you was like, no, there is a maze. We are going on this maze. So I loved it. Because take, it, you, take you around the world a little bit. Yes, around the world. And even like learning about digital storytelling and seeing how you are continuing the legacy of your father's journalism and representing journalism. I like as we are creating our Project 500 and I'm going out and interviewing these different educators, I know what you mean by like going out and 
doing the best that you can to gather information and present it to people so you can become informed on a topic. You know, like creating that space for that. So thank you for sharing your story. I'm thanking your father for all that he did for the culture for Jet and for Ebony. Are there any Black educators that you would like to thank? And I know you kind of named some of your high school educators and your two colleagues that supported you with mentor moments with Dr. Cheers. But are there any other Black educators that you would like to thank? Absolutely. I'm I'm going to... there. Two in particular, two are ancestors. Actually, all the people I want to mention are ancestors. But I'd love to give a shout out to Leslie Brown and and Dr. J. These are both educators who I had the pleasure of working with at Washington University in St. Louis. So just phenomenal, amazing. And then I would have to also say George Curry, who was the, the creator of Emerge Magazine, who's my uncle. He passed in 2016. And he was another one who always shared the importance of education through the written word. And and as a publisher of Emerge magazine, which was definitely one of the most iconic, you know, black black publications that was critical. I also reading Emerge all the time, had an opportunity to intern there. Shout out to Uncle George. And then finally I'd have to say Gwen Eiffel, another icon journalist, but who was always educating through her reporting, through her work, through all the people that she mentored, she was constantly giving back. And I think it's the four of them that I just mentioned, what I learned so much and what I cherish and carry on is the to pay it forward, to constantly pay it forward. I mean, so I started a mentoring program here at GW, and I'm always available for my mentees. They know that the importance of, of giving of yourself and your time to the next generation. And I was poured into so much that, you know, it is only fair and right that that just continues to move forward. And I hope I, I pass that along to my son and, and to understanding for him and the importance of it. So no, we are, we are blessed. I'm grateful to even be included in this phenomenal project. It's such, I'm, I'm even humbled to be able to, to share my story. So thank you. Thank you for having me. No, thank you. Everything that you have done, it was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you, Dr. Cheers. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember... Make excellence equitable and thank a black teacher today.